right, so I'm going to get us moving. We've got another awesome but big passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 11. I will not be offended if you have to get up and use the restroom this morning. I will not be offended if you have to get up and get communion, but we're going to get rolling uh, so that we can get through as much of this as we can. Uh, We are in... John chapter 11, and we come to the, the raising of Lazarus. It's a, a great passage. And this, this miracle, this, this raising Lazarus in John, is the seventh and final sign in the book of John. Okay, the seventh and final sign. The book is going to take a major turn to the second half in the coming weeks uh, as we move past kind of the ministry and the miracles of Jesus to, to his final teaching before he goes to his death and dies. But a little review for us, okay? Unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which include tons of miracles, tons of healings and and walking on water and exorcisms and all that kind of stuff, John only gives us seven. Okay, he's very specific, particular, intentional. He gives us seven miracles, and he calls them signs. Now, why does John call them signs? What are they signs of? Well, after the first one, John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. He writes this. He says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay, manifested his glory. He is showing us that he is God and he's showing us what God is like. Okay, for him to, for him to show the glory of God, he's both showing that he is God, but also showing us what God is like. Okay, Jesus does a sign which shows his glory and his disciples believe. Okay, sign, it shows glory, they believe. Well, at the very end of the book, John explains further in chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, why seven signs, why these seven signs? And he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these seven are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay, John wrote and gave us these signs which show Jesus' glory that we may read and believe and then live. You see the progression there. So that's my hope for this morning. My hope for this morning is that we would read what John writes. I want us to look at what he wrote. I want us to see the sign in the text. I want us to see Jesus' glory that we might believe and have life in his name. That's our goal. All right, before I read uh, the passage, let me pray. Father God, you who said, let light shine out of darkness, come now, shine into our hearts, and give us the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Would we see him this morning in your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, this is John 11. John 11, starting with verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed 
two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're, are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, 
I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Wow, church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, there's so much in this passage that we could pull apart, uh, but rather than taking it bit by bit, I'm going to walk us through three uh, interlocking themes that kind of go through the whole passage, but they help us see what's there. So we're going to see three things. We're going to see death's dark shadow. We're going to see resurrection and life. And then we're going to see glimpses of glory. Okay, let's dive in. Death's dark shadow. Hanging over our passage is the threat of death. Okay? The threat of death. As the passage opens, we see two things. Okay? Jesus loves this family, and one of them is ill. Now look at the women. Their brother Lazarus is sick. They are worried, and so they send for Jesus. Now we know from the other Gospels that these women, they know Jesus. Okay? They know him personally. They know him well, which means they know about his ministry. Okay? They know that he's busy, really busy. They know that there's lots of crowds, but they also know what he can do. And clearly they are worried enough to send for him. Lord, come. He's sick. The dark shadow of death is overtaking their brother, and they need to do something about it. But that's not the only threat. When Jesus finally tells his disciples, okay, let's go to Judea, they don't like that idea. They remind him, uh, Jesus, why would we go back there? Remember they're trying to kill you? We just barely escaped somehow, and you want to go back now? Jesus insists, and Thomas sums up what the other disciples must have been thinking or feeling about their impending doom. He says, well... Let us also go, that we may die with him. We're all going to our demise. I imagine Thomas kind of having the voice of Eeyore, you know, let us go, because he's the dark, depressing one. Now, the threat of death hangs over the sisters, causing them to call Jesus. And the threat of death hangs over the disciples and Jesus, but it doesn't stop him from going. And when Jesus arrives at Bethany, the shadow has deepened. Lazarus has been dead four days. And the two sisters meet Jesus in turn with the same exact appeal. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now just, just think about the pain of that statement. You know, I imagine that is something that they, that they told each other as they waited and still hoped. You know, before he died, they're hoping, they're like, you know, if the Lord comes, our brother will not die. If the, if the Lord comes, our brother will not die. He won't. But then it turned to disappointment when Lazarus succumbed to his illness. The Lord had been here. If the Lord had been here, he wouldn't have died. If only he had been here. Now, how many of us under death's dark shadow have thought or prayed similar things. Lord, if you come, if you heal, our brother won't die. Lord, Lord, if, if you come, my marriage will be saved. 
Lord, if you come, the cancer will go away. And how many of us, under death's dark shadow, have prayed, Lord, where were you? Lord, you have the power. Why, why didn't you come? Lord, what gives? You know, we all know that this passage has an amazing miracle that's still coming, but we can't skip too quickly over the shadow of death. You know, the last two years with COVID, with the, the videos of, of police killings, and now the departure from Am Afghanistan and, and the, the horrifying things that are coming out there, okay, death has been forced to the surface of our minds again. Maybe we had a little reprieve for a couple years, but, but the last two years have obliterated that. Now, whether or not we personally feel the shadow of death creeping in, nevertheless, many of our conveniences or distractions or comfortable diversions have also been stripped away. We all have experienced some form of loss and the transience of life in the last few years. As Augustine says, we seek the happy life in the region of death. Now, if you're new to Anthem, you're probably thinking, wow, I am glad I came to church this morning. You know, <laughs> woo, this is a positive one. Um, I know, so uplifting. Hang with me, okay, it gets better. But Jesus engages with the pain of living under this shadow. He doesn't say, buck up, ladies, watch what I'm about to do. He doesn't say, turn that frown upside down because it's miracle time. You know, here I am. No. Jesus takes the time to look at it, to engage it, to feel it, and then to face it. And as Christians, we can't just skip ahead too quickly to our hope, which is real. No, we have a calling to name the shadow, to say that this is not how it's supposed to be, even as it is the normal human experience. Otherwise, we run the risk of thinking that suffering is unusual, which is not after Genesis 3. Okay? So Matthew McCullough, it'll come up on the screen. He writes this. I think it's really good. He says, if I assume the world owes me comfort, convenience, and control, then when I suffer, I will likely blame God. I'll see my suffering as abnormal and therefore a sign of God's absence from my life. I won't recognize that. In fact, the brokenness that I'm experiencing is not a sign of his absence, but a primary reason for his presence in Christ. The world is broken. This is why Christ came. And that's why we must not rush past death's dark shadow. It's precisely because the world is dark that the light has come, which now brings us to our second theme, resurrection and life. Okay, when Jesus arrives in Bethany. Lazarus has been dead four days. Hey, the women, uh, the family, and an entourage of mourners have been grieving for four days. Okay, I imagine their eyes are real puffy. Whatever mascara they're wearing is definitely drooping. You know, you know the scene. It's, it's messy. Now, Martha, the, cons the consummate doer, she goes to meet Jesus on the way. She can't wait. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Martha, though overcome with grief and disappointment, still wants Jesus to know that she trusts his unique relationship to the Father. It's amazing, her faith. Jesus replies, your brother will rise again. Now, as readers, we know what's about to happen. 
And John's original audience, they probably knew Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They knew what was coming too. They knew the story. But Martha doesn't yet. Now, though she has good theology, she misses the point. She thinks that he's offering her hope, hope for the future, hope in the midst of pain, talking about the future resurrection of all humanity. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I, you know, I, I know Jesus. But Jesus says, Martha, don't you realize the future is here. I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying that future hope has broken into the present. The future is here. Life is here now. So when he calls to Lazarus and brings him out of the grave, he's demonstrating the future life that's breaking into the present. Now, in many of Jesus' teachings, he's used Old Testament images. We've seen these along the way. And he's saying, look, I'm here. The God of the past is here now. That God that you've heard about, that God that was told about, I'm here but in this passage here, he says, you know that God of the future? The God that the prophets, you know, told, said would, would do something? I'm here now, in the present. The God of the future is here in the present. Now, not only does he have the power to bring about resurrection and life, which he does, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's done this before. In past miracles and I am statements, Jesus went from saying, I can give you the thing to saying, I am the thing. So the woman of the well, he says, you know, I can give you living water. And then later he says, I am the living water. Come and drink of me and you'll never be thirsty again. He gives bread from heaven, you know, feeds 5,000. He says, I can give you the bread. But then a few verses later, he says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. I am the thing that you get, the thing that you're craving for, the thing that you're longing for. I'm it, and I'm here. Here, he says, I am the resurrection and the life that you're longing for, that future life that you're hoping for. I am that here in the present. The future is here. He says it, resurrection and life, resurrection and life. And he goes on, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, resurrection. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There's the life. If we believe in Jesus, we get eternal life now. It will be as if, as if we, we never die because eternity has broken into the present. The life that we get through Jesus, we can have now. We get it now through Jesus. We don't have to wait. Eternal life starts now because Jesus is here. Now Jesus then asks Martha if she believes, and she gives one of the, the most amazing confessions in the Gospels. She uses the same words as chapter 20, what John wants us to get. She says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. It's amazing. Christ with us, eternal life now, is dependent on believing. As we said at the beginning, believing is dependent on seeing the glory, which brings us to our last theme glimpses of glory. John says in chapter 20 that this sign, okay, Lazarus, this sign was written down so that we, future generations, could, could read it. We could see the sign we, and see Christ's glory, get a glimpse and believe. And in fact, Jesus says the same thing. Verse 4, Jesus says that this episode with Lazarus has the purpose of the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
And then in verse 15, Jesus says, Lazarus has died. And he's glad that the disciples weren't there, that Jesus wasn't there, so that they will see the glory and believe. So if we want that life, that eternal life now in the present, if we want that life, we need to see his glory. So in this last section, we're going to look at what Jesus does. I just want us to tease out what Jesus does and see if we can get a glimpse of the glory. I want us to look at Jesus and ponder Jesus and, and try to see his glory. In the midst of death's dark shadow, we see Jesus doing five things. Okay, We're going to move fast. But these things manifest his glory. They give us a glimpse of who he is. Okay, first thing we see. In, in the midst of the shadow, we see Jesus waiting. Okay, we see Jesus waiting. Did anybody find that surprising? Upon hearing Jesus's, you know, about hearing the news about Lazarus, he waits two more days. What is he doing? He's waiting. He waits two days and then resolves to go because he now he's heard or knows that, that Lazarus is now dead. Now this gives us a glimpse of his divine omniscience that Jesus is all-knowing. He's aware of what's happening far away in Bethany. He can time his movements perfectly, but there's more. Think about the sisters, what they say. They both say, if you had been here, okay, they're crying, they're asking, why, Jesus? Why, God? You could have done something. Well, the answer to why comes in verses 5 and 6. Look at it. Verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, or therefore, he stayed two days longer. It's because of Jesus' love for this family that he waits. He wants them to see the glory. One commentator wrote, the pain and anguish of the family are still of less worth than the nourishing of the faith of both the family and the attendant disciples. Now, I know that may seem crass on the surface, that somehow their suffering is of less worth than a glimpse of glory. But that's what Jesus says. Now, we're going to talk about this in two weeks, but God's glory is actually our greatest joy. Seeing it, beholding it, receiving it is our greatest joy, and Jesus knows this. So out of love, he waits, and he allows the suffering of those he loves to be prolonged. Now, get this. Jesus waiting, it shows his, his providential and sovereign timing. Now, we might ask, okay, why two days? Why did he wait? But we could also ask, well, why wait 30 years to grow up? Why not come as an adult instead of a baby? More efficient. Get right to it. You know, why 400 years of silence before that? And why the exile before that? And why the period of judges? I mean, talk about messy. And, and, and why 400 years in Egypt? Why did Abraham have to wait until he was 100 before God did something? You know what? Why didn't God deal with sin when it first happened? Why doesn't the Bible end in Genesis chapter 4? God, in his providence, in his sovereign goodness, has determined to do it this way. He waited because he knows what is best. He wants our best, and he does it this way for our best. And here we see Jesus waiting. Second, we see Jesus praying. And you say, huh? Where do we see Jesus praying? Okay. In the midst of death's dark shadow, Jesus 
was praying for Lazarus and the coming resurrection. Where do we see that? Look at verses 38 to 41. And this is, he's going to raise him from the dead, but, but some important dialogue takes place. Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Okay? The King James is amazing on this. It says, by, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Okay? Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Now, now pause there. They took away the stone. This is the moment of truth. Will he stinketh or not? You know, will the body be decomposing and putrefying or not? Everyone will know as soon as the stone is pulled. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. There's no smell. Okay? Lazarus's body has been preserved. But don't miss what Jesus says. Thank you that you have heard me. Jesus doesn't pray for Lazarus right there. Jesus has been praying. Jesus had prayed and God had answered it. Now it's possible this is part of what he was doing for those two days across the Jordan. We're not told. You know, he's waiting for God's divine signal, praying for God to preserve Lazarus until the appointed time for him to be raised. His body did not decompose because Jesus prayed. Now, in the midst of the shadow, we see Jesus praying. And did you know that he's still praying for you today? Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is a better high priest because of his once and for all sacrifice and that he always lives to make intercession for us. Right now, he's in the presence of the Father praying for you. Romans 8 says something similar. Part of our assurance in the midst of trials is that if we are in Christ, we have an advocate, someone praying for us, interceding for us, securing our good future. Martha says it. Even now, whatever you ask of God, God will do. It's assurance. It's confidence. It's because Jesus prays for us. We can be certain of our future. Jesus is praying. Third, we see Jesus grieving. Okay? Jesus is so moved by the grief of those he loves that he weeps. Two words in English, but with profound theological weight. Jesus weeping, grieving with those he loves. It highlights not only his empathy, but the empathy that is made possible by his humanity and the incarnation. One commentator pointed out that, that we often, we can't help it, we tend to stress one aspect of Christ's dual nature over against the other. You know, we find ourselves thinking of Jesus either as more God than human or as more human than divine. Historically, liberal theologians have thought of Jesus as a man, and they had difficulty thinking of him as God. Evangelicals tend to reverse this error. We tend to have a difficult time with the genuine humanity of Jesus. We have a tough time picturing the Son of God learning his math equations and getting sweaty and angry during a soccer game or struggling with his grammar lesson in Hebrew school. Or we might add, being overcome with emotion, weeping alongside the broken. It's hard for us at times to imagine you know, the divine Son of God doing that, but he does. Jesus weeps. And this is the glorious picture that John gives us. The transcendent God, the God of the past, the God of the future, the God who knows all and can do all, came close. 
he became a man, and he gets close to us, and he weeps with us. The transcendent becomes imminent. The big gets small to be with us, to be close. Jesus, he knew what was about to happen. He's told us what it's for, that there's something greater and better going on, but Jesus stops and weeps with Mary. He doesn't say, hold on, Mary. Oh, sweet little poppet, hold on. Just wait and see what I'm about to do. He doesn't say, oh, come on, Mary. Don't you know who I am? Get a load of this. Wapow, you know. He stops. He loves. He feels. And he weeps. We see Jesus waiting, praying, grieving, and forth, raging. Raging. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Those words, deeply moved. Also in verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again came to the tomb. Now our English translators have a hard time capturing just what's happening there. Okay, maybe you have a footnote in your Bible that says was indignant. The word, it's sometimes used for like a snorting warhorse. So D.A. Carson translates it, he was outraged in his spirit. Bob Gundry translates it, he says, he growled with the spirit. Jesus sees the effects of death's dark shadow and he gets mad. He gets mad. So B.B. Warfield says, the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. In Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he had come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but that is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. Okay, I think, I think that's so good. This is a glimpse, a glimpse of God's wrath, of God's wrath. Jesus' rage is a glimpse of God's wrath. Now, we may be tempted at this point to wonder, how is it that God's love and God's wrath go together? I mean, isn't God's wrath antithetical to his love? He's got love, right? Or or is is God capricious? Does he he flip-flop back and forth, you know, between love and wrath and love and wrath, depending if you set him off? No, not, not at all. Okay? Wrath is what you get when love encounters evil. Let me say that again. Wrath is what you get when love encounters evil. God in his very being as the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he's a God of love. For all eternity, there was no expression of anger, only love until sin entered the world. Now, any parent who, who twiddles their fingers and yawns at the suffering of their children, we know they don't love their children. We know they love by their wrath. Precisely because we love our children, we hate the thought of anything evil befalling them. So, let me read for you. By the way, this book is fantastic. It's about the Trinity, but don't worry about that. Um, there's a guy, Miroslav Volf. That is a name, Miroslav Volf, Croatian theologian. And he talks about wrestling with God's wrath until his people experienced genocide. And he says this, he says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? 
My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Let me say that again. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Jesus rages because of his love to these people, and he sees what death is doing to them. Now, we can pause here and notice these four things so far. Uh, They're glimpses of his unique glory as the Son of God. They tell us what God is like. But they're also a good encouragement for us for how we can confront evil and suffering in the world. These, These can be our responses too. We too can wait on God and his timing. Not rushing ahead, but patiently enduring. Many of us have learned this hard lesson over the last two years. We too can pray. We can pray for others, pray for God to preserve life and manifest his glory. Pray for ourselves, that our hearts would be rightly ordered and guarded from slipping into sin ourselves. We too can grieve. We can weep with those who weep as we get close enough to enter their pain and offer the ministry of presence to them. And we, too, can rage. Now, we must, we got to do this last one carefully. Jesus doesn't get mad at Mary and their weeping. He doesn't get mad at Lazarus. He gets mad at, at sin and death. But it's appropriate for us to get angry at the places where we see evil touch the lives of those we love. Now, a few years ago, our culture was like living in this beautiful age of tolerance. You know, love is love, man. We just need to be loving And now, the last few years, it's like age of outrage and anger and wrath. Forget tolerance. It's time to cancel people, shout them down, fight. Both of those impulses are counterfeit versions of the truth. There's a a shape of truth there, but they're they're off. We need all of these at the same time. Waiting demonstrates trust in God's sovereignty. Grieving demonstrates that the world is not as it should be, and there are real victims of sin and death. Rage can compel us to act and work for justice. And prayer reminds us who is the real Savior and ultimate solution to the world's ills. We need all of them at the same time. All right, back to Jesus. We see Jesus waiting, praying, grieving, raging, and lastly, dying. Admittedly, this might feel like the biggest leap from the passage, but it's there. His death on our behalf is actually stamped all over the passage. Friends, behind what Jesus is doing with Lazarus in Bethany is what he must do on the cross in the coming weeks in Jerusalem. See, Lazarus would die again. Have you thought about that? He would be buried again. He'd put on those grave clothes again. Something had to be done about death once and for all. 
We're told in verse 2 that it was Mary who anointed the Lord. That hasn't happened yet in John. You know, his readers know it's coming, but it doesn't come until chapter 12. But, but there in chapter 12, we're told that Jesus says it, it, it's preparation for his burial. He's going to die. The disciples fear that Jesus, and they, they're walking into a trap where they're going to be found and killed by the Jews. And in fact, they're not wrong. We're going to learn next week in verses 45 to 57 that, that the raising of Lazarus is the proximate cause of Jesus' crucifixion. When Jesus is waiting and praying, sensitive to the timing and plan of the Father, Jesus undoubtedly knew that this road would lead all the way to the cross. When Jesus comes to the tomb, and it's a cave with a stone rolled against it, readers might wonder, was Jesus thinking about the fact that soon he would lay in a similar tomb? When Jesus sees Mary weeping, he's outraged in his spirit and greatly troubled. That word will come up again in chapters 12 and 13 where his soul is troubled, his spirit is troubled precisely when he's pondering his own death, which John calls his hour of glory. And that causes us to wonder, when Jesus says that this episode with Lazarus is happening so that the Son of God may be glorified, we might wonder, does he mean in Lazarus' death and resurrection or in his own? On the cross, at his hour of glory, Jesus would wait. He would wait for you. He would have the power to save himself. He could come down if he wanted to, but he didn't. He would stay. He would wait. He would suffer, and he would die for you and for me. On the cross, Jesus would pray. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And his prayer would be heard. But he would accomplish that forgiveness. On the cross, there would be rage. But Jesus would stand in for us and take the fullness of God's wrath for our sin, his wrath toward evil, and he would take it upon himself, paying our debt. And after the cross, three days later, Mary would be at another tomb, weeping again. And the risen Christ would come and, and call her by name. And her sorrow would turn to joy. In the midst of death's dark shadow, we get glimpses of glory when we see Jesus waiting, praying, grieving, raging, and dying. Do you see it? Do you see the glory? It's why John wrote this. That we might see and believe and live. Jesus' question to Martha is his question to you and me. Do you believe this? Let me pray. Worship team.